we had a slightly rough reminder this week of the difficulties of dealing with heritage in the National Trust when a pipe burst and we had a large leak in, the, in um, our volunteer tea room and we lost part of our library ceiling on Saturday. Um, quite a lot of damage, a lot of Disraeli's things, um, which kept me busy until this morning. So I do hope you'll forgive my brevity and rather poor planning for this. Um, when we've not got leaks going on, the National Trust is all around what we inherit by and large. Everyone knows we have houses and gardens and coasts and parks and all sorts of things and the collections and the books and the statues and everything that go in those. But the trickier bit can quite often be actually when we inherit people's thought processes or perceived stories or historical understandings. Um, it's our intellectual as well as physical inheritance that often gives us the hardest thing that we need to wrestle with. Some spaces that we have have an in-hand collection. They have the right objects, the right interpretation. The, they still look the way we needed them to look for the story they need to tell to be really obvious. Other ones don't. Sometimes we have to imagine what we want to put in them. We have to think about the story we want to tell with them. And that's when we need to start coming up with props and semi-invented um, interpretation to hopefully give people the idea of what we're trying to say. Um, and it's when we have to do that that we can sometimes run into trouble. It's very, very hit and miss within the National Trust, as Dame Helen Ghosh has quite often pointed out of late. And Hewenden was the first major casualty on her list of pointing out what people weren't quite getting it right. Um, interpretation, unfortunately, is a real victim of fashion sometimes. What you do in the best of intentions one year looks horrendous and outdated five years later. And the amount of money necessary to put that kind of thing right isn't always available to us. So quite often people pop into a National Trust house and think, God, this looks awful, this looks like a museum I went to when I was a child. And it's not for want of trying, it's for want of us having enough cash to do anything about it. Um, the techniques sometimes that are prevalent within the Trust for interpreting spaces aren't always very cutting edge. They're certainly very much removed from the museum's world. Um, and sometimes the information that we actually want to impart to people is just wrong. It was based on what somebody understood or thought they understood a long time ago. I was listening to a, um, a guided tour that one of our volunteers gave, and he's been giving the same tour for 30 years. <laughs> um, and I asked him, was he absolutely sure about one aspect of it? He said, oh, yeah. So I said, where did you find that out, Edward? And he said, oh, well, the house volunteer captain told me when I first started... I said, do you know where he heard it from? He said, oh, no. <laughs> so we invent our own traditions of understanding quite blithely. Um, and the turnover of staff and volunteers is brisk enough that an accepted version of events for one person becomes a historical fact for the next. <laughs> and 30 years later, we can tell people complete fibs, <laughs> bare-faced, absolutely sure we're saying the right thing. Um, and... At Huendon, we had a real casualty of this attempt to do the right thing, but not necessarily cutting mustard anymore. And that was a room that we all referred to loosely as the statesman's room. Um, the statesman's room tried to tell the story of the Congress of Berlin. And it hinges around the picture on the, on the board there, the fan. Um, the story of the fan and exactly how it came into being is a little bit unknown, 
there's several received versions of it, all of which differ depending on which volunteer you happen to ask at the time. Um, the idea, essentially, I need to, unfortunately, you can't quite the order I'd need. I'll go forwards one and I'll come back one, I'm afraid. <coughs> this is the assemblance of people at the Congress of Berlin. And on the wall in the room, this used to sit above the top. And for the purposes of the fan, three people are crucial. Salisbury here, a rather aged Israeli here, and the Ottoman delegate at the Congress. The story being, essentially, once the Congress had run on for a little while, the Israeli's health began to fail rather grievously, and the Queen demanded he return to London so that she didn't lose him. Um, once he decided he was going to go, he offered an ultimatum in the evening that the following day he would return to London and declare war on Russia. And that when he did, all hell would break loose. Magically, by the following morning, um, an accord was reached and everything was signed up and everyone was quite happy. In particular, the Ottomans, who felt that they had somewhat had the Treaty of San Stefano addressed. Um, so the Ottoman delegate dashed round the other delegates with this rosewood fan and got them all to sign blades of it. That was then gifted to Disraeli as a one-off memento of the Congress, and he brought it straight back to Huendon. It's felt to be a one-off, the most significant item that could have been brought back from that Congress. And so, 30 years ago, when this room was last looked at, it was felt to be quite the thing that we should hinge an imagined story of a room around. Um, it's a little dry. That was the other side of the room. This is a slightly old photo. Well, that, the one that's on the wall there now is above the fan, and in that gap hangs the very famous picture of the statue of Disraeli Peace of Honour on the wreath. So it's a room that tries to tell the story of a really desperately complex piece of Middle Eastern European political history, but didn't actually tell you very much about anything, and really it did raise a lot more questions than it ever managed to answer. And... I arrived at the Trust and thought, this really isn't terribly good, my background being Middle Eastern history, and I thought, well, having studied this for six years, I couldn't tell you about the Congress of Berlin in one room, let alone in part all the ramifications of this to Joe Bloggs, who's come round after lunch on a Sunday with two kids. This really doesn't do a desperately good job, and Helen Gosh certainly agreed with us. Um, it is a victim of the time and the people that tried to do it it was when the National Trust tried to tell you rather than inform you. And it was around a curator that thought, well, what does it matter if you've got two, store, two studies on the same floor? This is very obviously a bedroom that's now being used as a study with no actual Disraeli furniture in it. All of it actually was pinched from Cliveden. <laughs> it's a really unsatisfactory, unsatisfactory room. Curatorially, there's nothing in it that has merit. Um, so we were faced with a situation of a room that was pretty crap, a story that was really tricky, and a complexity of interpretation that was well beyond any of the props in the room. It didn't help, of course, that all of these pictures you can see on the wall are various statesmen that Disraeli might have known, might not have known, nobody <laughs> quite knows why they ended up in the room, hence the original naming it as the statesman's room. So you didn't even necessarily go in there and think, crumb, this is about the Congress of Berlin. You just went in thinking, this might be a little bit political. Um, hmm? people walked out always with a lot more questions for us than they did answers and for a room that we had supposedly interpreted something that was a little bit disheartening um, 
we began to ask ourselves, should we be doing this? Is Hewenden the place to try and tell an international political story? Does the fact we have a couple of really crucial props from it actually mean this is the correct space to do it? And is it actually as important as we think it is? Um, and it was at that point that we turned to Oliver and his <laughs> magical team of people. This is what we've planned it, isn't it? Um, also, uh, so you've seen Rob and I have started dressing like each other. This is because we've spent a lot of time uh, working both on this project, but also on um, the sort of ramifications of this project, which have seen us sort of crisscross the national, the national trust empire. Uh, telling them about best practice, which has been jolly exciting. So where, to sort of pick up a story from where Rob left it off, where I came in is I, I'm a knowledge exchange fellow here at the University of Oxford, and that covers a whole, whole range of different sins, and no one really knows what it means. But essentially, what I do now is match up academic research and expertise within the university here with uh, external partner organisations of which uh, the National Trust is the major, the sort of, you know, the major recipient, but also um, an incredibly uh, interesting and rich and nuanced organisation to work with. Um, and so what we were tasked with, I was employed by the university to go and help, and I didn't really know what to do. So I turned up, I pitched up at Hewenden uh, probably about a year ago. Um, and said, well, 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 I'm here to help. I mean, I don't really know what the hell I should be doing, but what can I do to help? And, and immediately we went to, uh, we went to the, the statesman's room and it became clear that what we needed was a way of bringing in external knowledge, not necessarily knowledge, but a sort of another, another opinion, I guess, to allow Rob and his team to go back up the sort of hierarchical food chain and say, actually, you know, we're doing this wrong. This is the interesting way of doing it. And we have sort of expertise from the University of Oxford that enables us to make these claims. Uh, so we put together a little brief saying uh, we've got a problem with the Congress of Berlin. Um, you know, it's a thing that most people sort of relate to, I'm sure. Um, and I fired it off around the Humanities Division. And we were fortunate enough to get a reply from uh, a number of very wonderful people, Sandra and Helen being two of them who very kindly came uh, to uh, Hewenden Manor on the 3rd of July. Such a memorable day that I can even remember today. Look, there we are. Uh, uh, joyous, happy, uh, having decoded and cracked the mystery of the Congo of the Statesman's Room. Um, so uh, uh, I was getting luminous in terms of trousers that day. Um, the chap in the middle, William, looking... Uh, uh, William looks less delighted with what we've achieved, uh, but William was crucial in this because William is writing, William Kelly is writing a, a PhD on Disraeli and the Ottoman question. So a perfect sort of alliance with the particular kind of questions that we were looking to answer and to probe. And it was a very simple day, actually, worked remarkably well, which was Rob and his colleagues very kindly showed us around the property, sort of talked us through some of the issues and crucially sort of explain the kind of audience that go to Hewenden um, and who are the kind of people that we are trying to talk to and trying to engage and inspire. And um, 
really it was just a sort of couple of hours of thrashing it out in a workshop um, with, uh, with wonderful colleagues like you have uh, here today sort of suggesting their own particular takes on the Congress of Berlin and also what they felt the important story was with regards to that room and with, with regards to uh, Disraeli. I should, act, I should say that in all of this I have no knowledge of Disraeli whatsoever so I felt absolutely idiotic the entire day today. I sort of played a James Lee's Milne sort of, not in that way, but um, sort of mangle wurzling uh, it was, which is his lovely phrase that he coined for sort of the nitty gritty of getting everybody in a room together and getting it happening. So I sort of I mangle wurzled my way through to de- this day, just sort of bring, um, hoping that it all it all worked and um, it did which was fantastic and I mean from the sort of university perspective the reason that we're getting involved in this kind of stuff there's a sort of there's a cynical side to it, which is that through this kind of effective partnership work, which is sort of glossed up as knowledge exchange, i.e. working with, um, and I'm sorry about this, they call you non-academic partners, which um, there's a real problem. There's a huge problem in that terminology because it implies that there's no expertise within the National Trust, which, as we all know, is utter crap. Um, and most importantly, what it does is it sets up an unfair and I think imbalanced view of, part of collaboration, which sees academics as being the sort of keepers of knowledge and keepers of the flame, and uh, the trust as very sort of lucky beneficiaries of the gifts of the gods, which we all know, again, is utter rubbish. So the most important thing when it comes to collaboration, as I've found, is it's a meeting of equals, uh, um, especially because colleagues in the Trust not only have a degree of academic expertise that often we in the Academy don't value enough, but also, hell, they know how to, you know how to talk to audiences, which is maybe something that we could uh, learn a few things about. Sorry, this isn't a rant about academics. I realise that's what it's turned into. I'm very sorry. Um, so what this allows us to do, crucially, is through this kind of partnership work, access more uh, more money to allow more research and often that comes through the Higher Education Innovation Fund or the, as you know the Arts and Humanities Research Council with their increasing emphasis on impact and the way in which we communicate out to a non-academic uh, or sorry a public audience working with the National Trust in this respect is absolutely crucial because not only do the Trust have an audience they also have a venue and so by working together we create something that is really exciting has, legacy, has a legacy and and has uh, crucially an impact in the best possible way which is that this is a good thing it is fundamentally a good thing for us to be uh, working together and sharing our insights so that was how the day uh, panned out um, it worked much better than either of us I think had expected because like today we sort of both pitched up and ch- chatted a bit but things seemed to really really develop so once we did that uh, we did something else in the National Trust, we're told endlessly what we should be doing, what people might want to see. Uh, it isn't necessarily always informed by the most robust academic research. And for us, it was desperately refreshing because at the end of the day, we've been told what we shouldn't do, which was don't bother with the Congress of Berlin. You can't do it in that room, and it's not really as important as you think it is. Just because you've got the fan isn't the end of the world. <laughs> don't worry. So. We went away and thought about it, actually entirely liberated from 30 years of constriction that we'd have trying to make this wretched story work in this poxy room. <laughs> Eventually, we thought, well, actually, we've got wonderful things here. We are the closest to Disraeli that anyone's going to get, because we have his actual things. We have a lot of those stored in a room 
at the bottom of the stairs that nobody ever gets to enjoy, nobody ever gets close to them. And that if we've got a room that doesn't work as it is, let's be a little bit bolder, let's stop trying to present it as a historical space and just use it as a way to get people nearer to the stories that Disraeli might fancy telling them. Um, so our decision was that we had objects to support five different aspects of Disraeli's life and that through a year we would look at changing an exhibition five times to give you five different slots on Disraeli, starting with Disraeli in the East, which was William's suggestion in the centre. So at risk of sort of advertising ourselves tackily, that's the old room. And now we move into a new room, which is around drawing people's feedback more directly when we're trying to show them and showing them things in a different way. So these are the themes that are coming up. Disraeli in the East is in the room at the moment. And the objects that we have in our store support these four further themes that will be happening at and through the year. Disraeli in the East actually gets us out some objects that have never seen the light of day before. This is the seal of Nana Sahib gifted to Disraeli in Disaster the Indian Mutiny. And this is something that people have probably all walked past but never really noticed. It is the royal necklace of the last empress of Ethiopia, Tyler Warwick which just sat on a shelf, and it's actually internationally significant. The Ethiopian government has asked for its return. Of the royal necklaces that have these scrolls on, it's probably the only one in the world that the caskets have never been opened. The Amharic prayer scrolls are still in there, and scholars are desperate to get at it. But it's on display in a room in this kind of style. So it still has the flavour of a historical room. But things are more contemporary, and it's around showing you objects rather than trying to tell you an impossibly complex story. Um, and visitors love it. We're back to the beginning. The fan is still where it was, because it relates Disraeli to the very end of a lifelong passion with the East. So it starts with a crucifix that he got on his travel in, 1930, in um, 1830, and it fin finishes with the Congress of Berlin. And we make a point about Disraeli's lifelong passion for the East. Um, and we do that in a much more effective way than we ever managed the Congress of Berlin, and for that we have all of his team to thank.